0: This is Archive Atlanta, episode 140, Murder of John Abbott. You're listening to Archive Atlanta, a history podcast where each week I'll be sharing a story about the people, places, and events that shape the history of the city of Atlanta. I'm your host, local tour guide, and total history nerd, Victoria Lemos. Hey guys, happy Friday. How many episodes about murder am I allowed to have before I stop claiming that it's not my thing? Have I crossed over to the dark side? I'm not sure yet. But I will admit that while I'm still not into the wave of true crime podcasts and documentaries, I am easily enthralled by century-old murder cases. And once I started reading about this case, I couldn't stop. And there are a lot of tangible places still around that connect us to it. On January 27th, 1919, just a few weeks after the murder of Carlisle Christie, which I talked about in episode 128, Johnny Abbott lay dead on the floor of his living room, one bullet through the heart shot by his wife, Stella. Why? I'm about to let you know. This isn't just a story about murder. It's also a discussion of mental health, women's health, and how society viewed women at this time, and so much more. This story starts on Bass Street in the Mechanicsville neighborhood, named for the large number of rail industry workers, especially mechanics, but it was also very much a working-class part of Atlanta. Bass Street alone had two Atlanta firemen as residents, W.S. Mosley and John Abbott, who were next-door neighbors albeit two decades apart. Mosley was a hoseman at Station 9 in 1904, and Abbott was the personal driver of Fire Chiefs William Cody's Big Red Car about 10 years later. John earned himself the nickname Daredevil for the way that he sped, bobbed, and weaved at fire truck through town. And in Atlanta, with just over 200,000 people, he was well-known and well-loved. In 1914, the Abbott's moved into their Bass Street home. Stella was an Atlanta native, born in 1888, and she married Johnny in 1904, when she was just 16 years old. A year later, at 17, she gave birth to their first son, John Henry Jr., and suffered with severe postpartum depression and most likely postpartum psychosis. This is, of course, not how doctors describe this later in our story, but women in healthcare it's probably a whole other podcast, and in 1905, the two possible diagnoses for women were hysteria and mania. In 1907, she had a second son named Pierce, and again suffered with extreme mental health issues. A year later, she had a third son, I think his name was Harold, who only lived to be four years old. As you can imagine, Stella did not handle that well. Her doctors at the time suggested to her family that she be sent to Milledgeville, which meant the state's insane asylum. And while they did not institutionalize her, they also didn't get her help, and I'm not sure there was even help to be found at this time. Johnny and Stella soldiered on and made a life for themselves and their family. When they rented this house in 1914, they also rented a room to a couple, Mr. and Mrs. McIntyre, which was really common, especially for working-class families, to provide extra income. What did you do at night before cell phones, television, and even radio? You played cards. And that night in 1919, the Abbots and the McIntyres sat down to a card game, when shortly thereafter, the telephone rang. John got up to answer it and he goes, Hello? 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 But there was no answer. So he sits back down, and it rings again. He gets up, he repeats the process. By the third ring, Mr. McIntyre's like, let me get it, let me get it. And when he answers it, he hears a woman's voice that asks to speak to John Abbott. It was the voice of Mary Powers. So this is where it gets dramatic and complicated. Stella had suspected her husband was cheating for years, and she had suspicions about this phantom caller. When McIntyre said a woman was on the phone, she jumped up as, like, a woman? Let me talk to her. Grabbing the phone, she heard Mary's voice and things got heated. According to Stella, the two women exchanged words and he, she hung up and she went to confront her husband. The McIntyres smartly retreated back into their room and shut the door. Johnny sat in his armchair while his wife asked for his confession. We don't know exactly how long they argued, or we'll kind of find out later, it was almost an hour, um, or what exactly they said. But in this time frame, Stella phones her father, who lives on Highland Avenue, and she asks him to come over immediately. And when he arrives, she kind of demands, like, in front of John, you know, swear in front, of my, in front of my father that you have no mistress. And it was finally then that he confesses, and he admits to seeing another woman. Stella grabbed a thirty two caliber Smith & Wesson and shot John once through the heart. He slumped off his chair onto the floor and took his last breath. His two children were standing nearby. After the police arrived, they found Stella cold, calm, and collected. She asked if she could change before going down to the station, and she emerged from the bedroom in a black tailored suit, black hat, and black veil. At the station, she's calm and stoic, and she talks about her suspicions of him cheating and how much she has loved him for these past 15 years. In the interim, police arrived at the Bartow Apartments on Lucky Street, which was home of Mary Powers. So when she first answered the door, she's like, I don't, I don't know John Abbott, I don't know what you're talking about. But when they told her that he had been killed, her immediate emotions just gave her away. Mary was 23 years old. She was described by the papers as a quote-unquote captivating blonde. and She was waitressing in downtown Atlanta. The Constitution did, like, some investigative reporting about her later. They found out that she was from kind of the Alpharetta area. Her parents had died early, so she had come to the city to try to make money. She eventually admitted to the police that she had known Abbott for the last five years, but just recently found out that he was married. She didn't even know he had a phone number until finding it in his pocket the previous night. Both women are taken to the station, while John's body is sent to the coroner's office. Now, Mary was allowed to see the body. Witnesses says that she cried over him and kissed his head. Stella begged to see her husband's body, but she was denied. And both women were barred from attending the funeral. John Abbott was interred at Greenwood Cemetery, his fellow firemen acting as pallbearers. A court session is held at police headquarters. John's sister speaks in defense of her dead brother. She knew the couple wasn't very happy, but he had been providing for his family. On his off days, he drove cars for, I think, some company. So he was even able to buy his wife a car. And Stella's initial defense is like, hey, I would never have killed my husband if Mary hadn't called the house. And the police chief was weirdly, like, on her side, saying, you know, Mary should at least be charged with disorderly conduct, right? Right. And the judge was like, if that's the case, you're going to be arresting half of Atlanta, so get out of here with that. And so it's kind of interesting, there was still a, there was still this idea that Stella is a woman, and, you know, people felt bad for her. The whole thing attracted quite a crowd, mostly made up of other Atlanta women who were curious to see both Stella and Mary face each other in the court. Mary never spoke on her behalf, but she was released on $500 bond, and Stella Abbott was sent to the Fulton Tower. She hired attorneys Reuben Arnold and Edmund Martin to represent her. Just days later, on February 3rd, 1919, a woman was found dead in Greenwood Cemetery at the grave of John Abbott. And I'm sure you're all like, it's, it's Mary, right? Wrong. A third woman enters our story, and her name is Louise Gilbert. 26-year-old Louise was the daughter of a doctor from Dublin, Georgia, and from a young age, she loved to race cars. In 1914, there was a Dublin auto race with Nemo and Hal Gilbert. They were, I think they're brothers or cousins, and Harry Glenn. I've talked about these people before, probably in the motorcycle episode, because they were also big motorcycle racers. So she pulls up to this race in her very own modded car. All the guys loved her, of course. uh, But she met Hal and the rest, so they say, was history. The two got married two years later. By 1919, Hal operated a garage on Ivy Street, and Mrs. Gilbert was famous for racing around the city in her White Moon Speedster. She and Hal were Lakewood Speedway legends, really well-known, and Hal had actually had a horrible motorcycle accident at Piedmont Park a few years before this, and so it, it almost killed him, and he had lifelong scars. The day before, Mary Powers did visit the grave in the morning. She left a bouquet of roses in front of the headstone. Greenwood Cemetery staff said that they would see Gilbert visit Abbott's grave every evening at the same exact time, right at dusk, where she would kneel at the grave and weep. That evening of February 3rd, she took off her wedding ring, leaving her other rings on her other fingers. She placed it at the base of the gravesite. She took out a rag soaked in chloroform, and she covered her mouth. We'll never know if it didn't work, if it made her sick, or she just abandoned that attempt, but we do know that she took out a small gun and then shot herself through the heart, falling on top of the roses just left by Mary the day before. The next morning, the cemetery sexton found the body and called the owner of the cemetery, who incorrectly identified her as Mary Powers. When police arrived, they realized it wasn't Mary, and they found the ring, the empty chloroform bottle, and the rag next to her body. As you can imagine, the public is just shook by these news, but interestingly enough, the police were not. They had actually planned to interview Louise the following day, and they had intel about a photo of hers being inside Abbott's fire station locker and other items in their possession that showed there was a connection between the two. People in Atlanta had seen the two talking before, they had seen them together in her car... Mr. Gilbert, her husband, though, is like, no, she didn't know John. He had worked on Abbott's car in the garage. He says there was a situation where he was talking to John Abbott and Louise walked out to to ask her husband something and made no motion or no gesture that she knew him. Both Hal and her family insisted that Louise was not well mentally and physically, that she suffered with nervousness and other physical ailments. Was this true? We're never going to know. I think the whole thing would have been a scandal today, let alone the the amount of scandal it was in 1919. Louise was a society girl back in Dublin, so I wonder if this story, you know, if her, her illness was made up to cover for her reputation. Now, if you're wondering how this affected the legal case, it weirdly did not at all. Once Louise's body was taken to Dublin for burial, it's like everybody forgot what happened. By the middle of February, Stella Abbott's trial finally began. Indicted for murder, her defense team's initial thought was to go with emotional insanity. When it was discovered that an hour had passed between the phone call from Mary and the actual shooting, her attorney Reuben Arnold suspected that maybe there had been a struggle for the gun so he could argue for self-defense. The prosecution's main witness was Mr. McIntyre, the boarder. He stated the timeline for the jury. He said that Stella grabbed the pistol and told John that he better confess before morning or she would kill him. When he was cross-examined, he said Stella was like transformed after the phone call. She was calm and collected and just not like herself. When Stella Abbott finally took the stand, she recounted years of abuse. She said her husband had not been caring for the children for the last five years. He had never paid for their dead child's headstone. He was never home for dinner. His monthly salary was $120, but he only gave her $10 a month. She was forced to get a job at a department store, and she rented rooms in their homes to cover their expenses. Her oldest son started working at the age of 12 just to buy his mom some shoes. So the night of the murder, she says he was off work, but he was not home. And when he finally got there, he was really nervous and didn't want to eat dinner. She said that after the phone calls, she was manic. She describes it as having no memories of the details. All she kind of remembers is grabbing the gun because she was going to kill herself. But she thought of her two sons. Two other witnesses were called, the doctors that delivered both of her children. Dr. Pierce said that after her first child, her pulse and temperature were normal, but she was not well and was having visions. He was the one that described it as mania. Dr. Benson treated her after her second child um, when she was in bed for three months with almost no recollection of even having given birth. He strongly advised the family to institutionalize her, which I said earlier they did not. And so I am not a medical professional whatsoever, but that sounds like postpartum psychosis. Um, It just sounds like there was a lot of issues that had never been addressed, that had never been talked about because it's 1919. It took a jury of 12 white men, 21 hours and 35 minutes to convict Stella Abbott of manslaughter. She was led into the courtroom with friends at each arm, described as being in a near-fainting state. Her sons were with her when the verdict was read, and the judge sentenced her to 10 years in prison to be served at the state prison farm in Milledgeville. Now, her lawyers filed an immediate appeal, but the city was just a buzz because this was the first, or at least the first in any recent memory, woman to be convicted of murder in Atlanta. So she doesn't immediately go to the prison farm because she has the appeal. Her second trial began in May of 1920. Arnold's defense at this time was the whole, you know, poor, sweet woman. Cheating husbands are the problem. He blamed alcohol. He even went in a whole rant about how women love a man in uniform and can't help themselves, which, I mean, okay. Solicitor Boykin, who's a prosecutor, he's like, look, I, I don't want her to be hung. If she was a man who committed murder, that's what would be happening. But she was completely unemotional after the shooting of her husband. So what do you want me to do? It took the jury only one and a half hours to find Stella, once again, guilty of voluntary manslaughter. She was then sentenced to four to eight years, and a motion for a new trial was filed immediately. By June, that new trial motion was withdrawn, her father died of a heart attack, and Stella was already in Macon, making a pit stop on her way to serve time at the prison farm. She served just over one year before her attorneys filed a petition of clemency to the prison commission, and it was signed by 1,062 people and all but one juror who originally convicted her. Her son, John, who was 16 at the time, stood before the commission, teary-eyed, expressing that she had never missed his birthday until now. Letters from the warden were sent in explaining that she was a model prisoner, and in September of 1921, the state prison commission recommended parole. In December of that same year, Governor Thomas Hardwick pardoned 23 inmates from the state prison farm, Stella being one. A Mrs. Springer was a prison reform activist, and she was credited with aiding Stella in her release. And yes, I am already researching more about Mrs. Springer. I hope there's enough to share in a future episode. Stella went on to remarry, becoming Mrs. Earl Palmer Glover, and she kept that title until her death in 1968. So what is left to see? The house on Bass Street where this all went down is still standing. And you better believe that I found that Abbott gravesite. I gotta give a shout out to my cemetery living friend, Cynthia, who told me where to focus my search inside Greenwood, because I was going to this blind. I'm like, okay, I need, to, I need to find a headstone in, like, a giant cemetery. So she told me to go up to this certain portion of the hill, and then just magically, arbitrarily, I parked about 200 feet from the gravesite. I'm just going to leave that up to some kind of cosmic intervention, Um, but I found it right away. And the family plot has Stella's parents, Luke and Eula Fenn, on one side, and then it just says Abbott on the other. No first names, no other inscriptions, uh, no plaques in the grass. So my best guess is that this is where John, his in-laws, and his third son lie in eternal rest. It's also, of course, the spot where Louise Gilbert committed suicide, and it was really strange and weird and emotional to be in that exact spot after doing this research. Stella and her second husband are also buried at Greenwood, although in another plot that I haven't found yet. I also got way too invested in the story um, and the family, and I found out that her grandsons are still alive, or at least they were in 2020, and they live together in Decatur. So there you have it. The story of John Stella Abbott, Mary Powers, Louise Gilbert, and how their lives tragically intertwined in 1919. Thank you everyone for listening. Remember to leave a rating and or a review. Hope everyone has a great weekend, and I'll talk to you next week.